Hi, I'm Matthias, and this is V Wanna Know, a podcast from V Magazine and powered by Ukes, the world's leading online store for fashion, design, and art that lasts a lifetime. On this show, we're diving into the world of stranger fixations and lesser-known interests of some of the biggest names in music and fashion by pairing them with an expert in their field of interest. On today's show, Emma Chamberlain. When she was only 20 years old, the New York Times declared Emma the funniest person on YouTube. That's where she amassed her huge following after her specific approach to video editing, paired with her unique style of being vulnerable and unfiltered while documenting her life, allowed her to become one of the best recognized content creators in the world. Now, she's also launched a podcast, Anything Goes, as well as her own coffee company, Chamberlain Coffee. Emma wants to learn more about the evolution of media over the last several decades. How has the shift to digital media changed how we engage with each other and with different types of media? And what role do identity markers like race and gender play? To learn more, we spoke to Lynn Joyrich, a professor of modern culture and media at Brown University and author of one book and many articles on media and gender studies. She's also a member of the editorial collective of Camera Obscura, a journal on feminism, culture, and media studies. In 60 seconds or less, here's Emma's life story in her own words. Hi, I'm Emma Chamberlain. If I had to tell my life story in 60 seconds, it might be impossible, but I'm going to try right now. So let's see what happens. I grew up in San Francisco. Well, okay, let me start over. I grew up in Northern California. I have two amazing parents. I'm an only child. I grew up kind of in a creative household. I did different kinds of sports, different types of creative activities growing up. And eventually one day I became a YouTuber and my life very much changed forever. I started doing the internet as some might say. And now that's my life. And I definitely didn't expect it to happen. So how was that? You nailed it. Okay, great. I think that was just, I mean, I, we never ever count, but I felt in my heart like that was just under 60 seconds. It felt right. So like you said, you started doing the internet. Now you are a YouTuber amongst other things, obviously. My first question, it really is more of like a timely one. So your job is definitely something you can kind of do at home and on your own. So I, obviously the pandemic still affected you, but you were still able to work in a lot of ways. I guess it depends on where you are in the world. But now that we're starting to reach the other side, how is your life starting to change? What is work looking like, social life? What does the other side look like for you? You know, I was so incredibly fortunate to be able to work from home and be able to do pretty much everything that I did before during the pandemic. I actually think that the pandemic kind of forced me to create content, even though I was uninspired and bored for over a year. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I had not a lot of inspiration because a lot of inspiration for my podcast, for my YouTube videos comes from real life and comes from experience. And I didn't have any of that. So I was kind of 
having to really, you know, use my brain a lot more than before. Whereas now I'm able to go out and be a little bit more social and I can film myself going, you know, to different places, traveling, stuff like that. And it, it feels so much easier. It's, it's almost like because I had to work under circumstances that were a little bit less inspiring, now that the world's opened back up, I feel so inspired because the opportunities are endless, you know, and I have so yeah. many things I want to do. And because I have so many things I want to do, you know, that means there's so many things that I want to film and so many things that I want to talk about on my podcast and all of that. I've really been enjoying trying to say yes to more things because I've always been somebody that wasn't the most social, you know, kind of kept my circle small, but I am trying to be more of a yes man and just go to whatever now that, because I want to make up for lost time and, and have fun experiences. And that all indirectly affects my creative process. It doesn't seem like it would relate that much, but my social life very much affects it. So that's why I'm trying to do as much as I can. And I've been having a lot of fun and I've been going to a lot of restaurants and pool parties and doing the whole thing. Ooh la la. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way, but it's true. Your job is documenting real life. So when real life is really shitty because the world is like imploding, none of us were like experiencing anything except for mostly like shitty things and some good like self-reflection for sure. So I can imagine how like, okay, you're still home. You can still set up your camera and connect with your audience, but when nothing's going on. So if your job is to make content out of that life, that's a challenge. That's a great way to put it. You know, the way that I record podcasts and film videos is very much like talking to a friend. I feel like, you know, it as kind of bizarre as that may sound, it's true. And so it was exactly that, you know, I would turn on my camera, I would start recording a podcast and I would sit there and, and be like, the only thing that I've done for the past week is just self-reflect <laughs> and like, watch YouTube videos and maybe go for a walk. Like that's it. I have nothing to say. And I found myself feeling very frustrated because I felt like I had nothing to say. And that's really hard because, you know, I I wasn't going to quit. I didn't want to quit. I wanted to keep going. But, you know, some of my videos during that time were literally just me sitting in front of the camera saying, I'm not going to lie to you guys. I'm bored right now. I'm bored. I'm kind of sad. And and I'm, I'm not having a great time, you know, but that was honest. And I think people actually connected with that and needed to see that and hear that during this time, because, you know, nobody wanted to see somebody at a party, you know what I'm saying? Like on a vlog during, the, nobody wanted to watch that, you know, they wanted to see something that they could relate to. And that's what I wanted to see too. So it was this perfect kind of scenario. I think it it worked out for the time as kind of excruciating as it was. I don't think it was the worst thing. It had its silver linings for sure. It totally did. I feel like you have this very much two-way street with the people that watch your content and your videos where even what you were just saying about during the pandemic, there was nothing going on and people maybe really appreciated the videos. We were just like, fuck, like I'm bored. Like it's boring. You know, like nothing's happening. It's boring. But I also like in reading older interviews that you've done, understand that where people are maybe relating to you from your content, you also, I feel, relate to a lot of people that watch your videos and you kind of have built like a community, you know, where you're actually like engaged And so I'm wondering if you can just speak about that, not only how people have found you, but how you've kind of found this community that's really massive now. 
it's crazy. I mean, it's so cool to me because I have always been somebody that loved, I love vulnerability like between, you know, like that's something that I've always really connected with in general. I just, some people don't like that, you know, some people don't like that. And I get that too. But for me, I've always been somebody that loves to have a vulnerable conversation. And that's what makes me feel truly connected to other human beings. And even though I don't necessarily talk about everything in my life, I do have a few areas that I like to, you know, keep off the internet for my own sanity. I still feel like, you know, my conversations with the camera can sometimes be really vulnerable. Sometimes they can be surface level, but sometimes they can be really vulnerable. And I think as scary as that kind of is sometimes for me, I think that it attracts people that are like-minded and that also connect with vulnerability and that maybe need vulnerability or just kind of want, it's so hard to explain because it's so abstract, but it's like, you know, they want like a real human connection, even through the internet. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Which is still a very, that's still a very real human connection, even if it's through the internet. Absolutely. You know? And it's so weird. Cause it's like not something that we've experienced before in history. It's very new. So it's hard to explain, but I feel like I've been able to truly connect with so many people because I do talk to my camera. Like it is weirdly enough, a human being. It's so bizarre. I, again, I don't know how to explain it, but it's, it's like talking to a friend. And so, you know, when I meet people in real life who watch my videos, it, it feels like we're friends, you know, because we've met in a weird way. And I feel like I know them, they feel like they know me. And it's because I talk to the camera pretty similarly to how I talk to my friends. It's very special. I just try to keep it as real as possible. And I mean, it somehow grew such an amazing community through that. I think people just really resonate with the authenticity. That's not always what you get with everybody. Totally. Lynn Joyrich is in the waiting room, so I'm gonna let her in. Do, do, do. here she is. Hello, Lynn. Hi. 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 Hi, listeners. It's Matthias. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you've been with us for some time now, you have amazing taste. I admire your dedication and loyalty, and I consider you one of my nearest and dearest friends, really. Regardless, Ryan and I want more. If you take 30 seconds to subscribe, leave us a review or a rating, we can keep putting V when I know out there for free. So long as it's like a good review or a good rating. If you don't like our show, please just like don't tell anybody about that. If you do any of the above, DM me a screenshot on Instagram and I'll choose a few listeners to receive a free copy of V Magazine's forthcoming September issue. That's it. Later. How are you, Lynn? Good. How are you? I'm good. Should we call you Professor Joyrich? Um, sure. That's what my students call me, so that's fine. Okay, you've got it. Well, we're your students of the day, so I'll, I'll call you Professor for now. My name is Matthias. This is Emma. Hi. Hi, Emma. Nice to meet you. So nice to meet you. So we're going to have a couple questions for you, mostly Emma, but I'm wondering, Professor Joyrich, if 
just to start things off, you can tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you teach. Sure. I am a professor in the Department of Modern Culture and Media at Brown University. And that department is interested in multiple media forms. So it covers sort of film, television, digital media, photography, sound, et cetera. So it covers a lot of, of areas, my own specialties. I was trained in, in film studies, but then really went into television studies. So my own focus is primarily TV studies. And within that, I look at the way TV sort of helps to create our ideas around gender, sexuality, race, nation. You know, I still continue to do some film studies and some digital and social media studies, especially as they intersect with TV, because, you know, now, as of course, Emma knows more than anybody, we, we live in a world of, of screen cultures. So all of these media forms are sort of intersecting and converging in this world of sort of living with and through screens. So like I said, I look at that primarily in relationship to gender, sexuality, and, and race. Yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> so cool. Thank you. And, and vice versa to you. <laughs> Thank you. I would say my first question that just came to my head immediately was I've always been so curious about how, you know, this new digital sort of revolution, if you will, has affected traditional TV and movies and stuff like that. And how, like, you know, do you think personally, this is more of an opinion question, but do you think that television and movies are going to have to evolve soon in order to keep up with the new digital fast paced TikToks and Instagrams and YouTubes that are like so much more digestible. It's quicker content and it grabs your brain so much easier than say a movie or TV. Do you think that TV and movies are going to have to evolve in a way? And how do you like feel like that's going to happen in order for it to keep up? Yeah, I think that there's interaction or, or influence from both sides, actually. Thinking historically with every new technology, right? There's both this sense of like, oh, wow, this is like a totally you know new thing, the kind of photographic revolution. Like you referred to the digital revolution. But one could say that about all of these, the invention of photography, the invention of television, et cetera, et cetera. And to some degree, of course, they create massive changes. They're also created by the culture in which they're in. So they also involve continuities, right? Right. And then the influences from both sides. So for example, I mean, I'd be curious to know, Emma, what you think about this too, as a YouTuber. I mean, YouTube was... was both a kind of new form, but of course, in many ways, it was totally modeled on television. Even the idea of, you know, YouTube, that it's a reference, people today don't know this anymore, to the cathode ray tube that was what allowed TV images, and even just the language of it, you know, the language of having a channel, for example. So in a lot of ways, it was modeled on television, even as it was, you know, opened up possibilities that were different from traditional television. It also, I would say, on the kind of institutional level, you know, certainly borrowed strategies from television in terms of how to monetize it. The idea even of what, what people in TV studies call TV flow, images flowing after each other so that there's both sort of interruption and continuity 
and you can monetize, you know, you try to encourage people to keep viewing, whether it's by, you know, stay tuned after this break or whether it's like the next video up to kind of capture viewers so that you get that kind of flow. Now, when television sort of became a mainstream media, it itself was seen as speeding everything up because it had that sort of, unlike cinema, right, where you pay for a ticket for the experience of getting like a two hour continuous narrative, right? TV going into the home was, was set up to kind of be monetized differently. At first broadcast TV was quote unquote free, but everybody really paid for it through the, the price of the goods that advertised. And now you got, you know, a little bit of a show, a promo for something, the intro, add, add, add a little bit of the show. So it itself was seen as like interrupting things even as it, you know, this funny mix of continuity and discontinuity that again was sort of lots of little quick bursts. Now, YouTube in a way added to that. So even more so. And for example, one of the things I think is so interesting in your work, Emma, is, is your editing style and the way you make use of the capacities of that medium, you know, to kind of highlight the little like bits and gags and sort of call attention and and sort of show how one can make an interesting narrative out of everyday life. Now, again, TV sort of introduced that too. Again, unlike movies, TV always had reality genres from the beginning and was part of everyday life as people watched in their own home while they were doing chores or cooking dinner or hanging out. So in a way, I think there's a continuity, but I also agree with you that there are changes I mean, of course, it's created, like I said, from within the social conditions of its existence. But then once it exists, people play with it and they create new things. And then that changes our ideas of what it can be. So now I think it's true that both films and television programs have in many ways borrowed back from digital media to kind of have rapid editing, more jump cuts, less emphasis on necessarily invisible editing and more play with sort of, you know, spectacle as well as play with just the everyday. So you get a kind of convergence and in today's world, they really are converging. I mean, now when films are made, they're partially financed by already being pre-sold to sell on TV. So they already have to be edited in a way that will allow for commercials, vice versa. TV shows are already made with the idea that they're going to have digital media tie-ins, webisodes or right. other content. So they have to kind of create, you know, a narrative world, a kind of mediascape that allows for transmedia storytelling. So in many ways, they are coming together and certainly on the economic level. So you get mm -hmm. a funny mix now where the possibilities for media in many ways are multiplying but institutionally, you know, there's like five multinational major corporations that own practically every film studio, TV station, social media, you know. So on some levels, there's more homogenization. It can be deceptive. We feel like there's more openness. But in a lot of ways, there's actually on an economic and institutional level, we're constantly being addressed as consumers and we're being made into ourselves commodities. We're made into these, you know, data 
entities that our, our info is bought and sold as things are trying to sell to us. So that, you know, in the situation now with, with new media, I think there's both exciting new possibilities and there are things we need to be cautious about the way that, you know, we're being marketed and sold and turned into, again, you know, these objects to be surveyed so that they can sell to us even better. Right. God, that was such an amazing answer. I like, <laughs> I like, that was amazing. Uh, it is so, it is crazy. It, and when you put it like that, it's very true. And every new thing that's been added to the world of this whole thing, whether it was photo, movie, TV, you know, it's the natural evolution of everything. Like, it's like everything kind of piggybacks. And so that makes me so curious to see what's next. Like, how yeah. can they take what we already have and make it something even quicker and even more exciting to us as humans? Like, I am so curious to see what's next, but I guess yeah. we can't imagine it until it's right in front of us and then we're addicted to it. But speaking of that- well, you should just bump in for one second. One thing I would say is, I wouldn't call it the natural evolution. I would call it the social evolution because again, there are always forces, both of the ones from the industry and again, kind of commoditization and forces from the creative community. And both of those are actually pushing it forward. So it doesn't happen quote unquote naturally. It's really how people direct it. And again, it's so exciting to see young producers like you, you know, play with the medium and help create what it could become. So when you say you're curious to see what it will be, it's partially what people like you do. The other thing I would quickly add is that on the one hand, yes, you're right that there's a lot that's getting quicker and quicker. But at the mm -hmm. same time, there's also a renewed interest these days in what some people refer to as slow cinema or slow TV of just like a camera on, you know, a bird's nest that people wanna watch for hours to see the one moment when the baby bird pops out. So in this world of sort of hyperspeed, there's equally an interest in saying, you know, let's pause and let's try to, you know, look at things that way. So it's interesting you have both going on. Anyway, sorry for interrupting. No. no, that is very true because I recently deleted TikTok off my phone because I felt like it was making me very anxious because not only is it a very dramatic, platform in general, but also something about the amount of information I was receiving in such a short amount of time was making me, it, it really bothered my brain. So I deleted the app and I've been loving, you know, more simple things. Again, nature shows. I watched a show about penguins <laughs> for like three hours for what reason? I don't know. But um, I do think that that's a really good point that Th that's still needed. People still appreciate the slower moving stuff, even though we have very entertaining, very fast moving stuff too, that almost might make us appreciate the slow stuff even more. Yeah. So that might not be a bad thing. Yeah, I think that there is an interesting sort of mix between them because I do think we're just, you know, we're interested in seeing the world through different screens and lenses now, and that can be hyped up, it can be slowed down, they can intersect. But I think it opens up again, both ways in which some people feel like it, it we're being too commodified, too always turned into an image, a brand that we're always sort of marketing ourselves. But at the same time, seeing the world through screens can also give us 
interesting ways of thinking about how can you shift those screens? How can you change the lenses? How can we make an impact on the world through literally creating different modes of seeing? It kind of blows my mind when I really think about it because I also, I'm intimately a part of it, but at the same time, because I grew up, you know, watching YouTube and doing the whole thing, it felt so natural to me, but it's so interesting to break it down and look at it like that. And I don't know, it is very crazy. Is it safe to say that in no time in history have people also been creating through media at the same level that they are now? And by that, I mean, for example, just on Facebook, at least, my mom, who's in her mid-60s now, will occasionally post what she ate that day or something that before would only a blogger 10 years ago would be doing that. And now everybody's kind of sharing and creating on a bigger scale than we ever have been. So we're not just consuming media, but we're also creating within it. And I wonder if you have anything you can say about that. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that audiences, I mean, even us being thinking of ourselves as audiences is a historical sort of creation. But I think that, you know, people engaging with media from like the earliest days of cave drawing to, you know, have always been active even if it wasn't seen as much, right? And, you know, for example, again, to go to the sort of early days of cinema, early days of TV, yes, you didn't have people, obviously there was no online to get in comment, but people would chat with their friends. They would write letters to the editors. They would even with early TV fan cultures, you know, created fan fiction through mimeographed newsletters. So I think that people were always active. And I think that the image that sometimes people have of, viewers as just these passive consumers and sponges, the kind of couch potato, or when people say, oh, it's a, is always too simple. People are always kind of, you know, the intersection of what you're getting from these screens and your own cultural references, your own interests, your own, the other discourses you're familiar with always created a kind of activity. So I don't think viewers were ever as passive as some of the kind of paranoid ideas with each new media, people are like, oh, comic books, they're bad for you. TV, it's bad for you. And you know, everything in moderation, but viewers I think are always active and creative. But it certainly is true that now with the tools of digital media, it makes that easier and it makes it more public. And so, you know, instead of people gathering around the water cooler, you're gathering around, you know, whatever, the Twitter feed. So I do think that there's sort of more of that interaction. I always wanna, you know, let people know, well, but people in the past were active viewers too. And then equally, I think that there can be an idea now like, oh, we're all just so free to create our own content. We're also free to say whatever we want. Of course, you know, there's always a mix of freedom and constraint. I mean, we're products of the culture we're in. So when people make content, they tend without even thinking about it to use the kind of conventions that they're familiar with. They follow the styles that they've seen. So in some ways, we are still constrained by the cultural forms around us. And we certainly are constrained by, like I said, the economic structures at the base. People don't think about that. But again, a lot of what seems like freedom is just the freedom to make yourself into a brand image for people to consume and to become commodities themselves. So what kind of freedom 
is that. I, I don't want to dismiss it. I do think that there's really interesting possibilities for creativity, again, as someone like Emma shows. But I think we always need to be realistic about, you know, we're always in that mix of sort of activity, passivity, freedom, constraint, creating new things, convention and invention. Mm, got it. Wow. But it is interesting also what you were saying about like your mom, you know, posting what she ate. There, it, it is interesting. And I do think it's an effective media that getting more and more used to kind of what was seen as the public sphere and the private sphere really coming together. And these screens are right at the border. This is one of the things I write about a lot in, in my work, that these screens are right in a way at the border of the public and the private, the intimate and the social, right? You're showing your intimate daily life to a world out there. It's your private life, but it's public. Right. And then it's, it's public, but it's also privatized in terms of ownership and who. So those kind of borders are both created and blurred. And to me, one of the things so interesting about that is often the way we define certain identity ideas about what gender is, what sexuality is, is also exactly on that border of the public and the private that, you know, the domestic, it's what's most intimate to you, but you put out to the world. It's what you perform and you feel. So there's a way in which these screens being right at that intersection where the very way we think of our identities are at that very intersection means, I think, and this is, you know, again, my research focuses on, so what does that mean then for the way that screen cultures can really impact you know, ideas of gender, of sexuality, of race. So one question I would have for you, Emma, if it's okay, is how, you know, what's your experience as a young woman creator? Yeah, I think that being a creator in general is a very confusing thing because it's kind of new in a sense. I think one of the struggles I had in the beginning was that there's so much room to do whatever you want, which means that in order to actually create things, you have to have a relatively decent sense of self. And, you know, as a young woman, you do not have the best sense of self, okay? Like, you know, you are still creating that until forever, but especially when you're a young woman. And so- yeah. So there was something kind of terrifying about creating content on the internet as a young woman because I was in these transitional periods of my life and they were very public. I think most people, as they're growing up, when they have a little embarrassing phase, that becomes a far memory for most people. But when you create content on the internet, it is not a distant memory. When you're watching a video of me when I was 15, 16, it seems current, you know what I'm saying? Because it, it's documented. Yeah. And so that's been a really interesting part of it is that, you know, my intimate life has been shared with the internet. And so, you know, I have to relive experiences. I have to see embarrassing photos of myself from when I was younger. And like, I, that is definitely kind of terrifying and sometimes uncomfortable, but it's also a part of it. And I'm, you know, I've learned to accept it and just roll with it because, you know, I'm so grateful for so many other parts of it that I can deal with that being a little bit 
unfortunate at times, but I think it's also made me have to try a little harder to figure out what my own identity is. Because so many people on the internet have something to say about me and my identity and who I am, what type of person I am and what, you know, um, how I should behave, how I shouldn't behave, what I should talk about, what I shouldn't talk about, what I should show, what I shouldn't show. And there's so many opinions, you know, and so many voices at all times about truly my personal life, even though it doesn't feel that personal to them, but it does to me. And so I've had to really, you know, lean into my parents and my friends and myself to kind of ask myself and the people that are close to me, okay, what are my priorities? Who am I? Who am I really? And without all the voices, like who am I? And what is my goal here? What am I doing? And, And what inspires me and makes me feel good? And what is the message I want to spread? And it's, it's a lot of kind of identity crisis in a sense, because there's constantly so much information and so many opinions and it's mind. It is like, it it makes your brain feel like it's exploding. But at the same time, I get a grasp on it, you know, for a few months and then I'm good. And I'm like, I can enjoy this. exactly what I was saying. I mean, you're really exemplify this. And again, exactly that intersection of the sort of public and private, the personal, you know, and the more social. And that's exactly sort of where you are. That's, I think, one of the things that makes your work so interesting. But it is really interesting to think, you know, when you think about the history of different, you know, kind of technological media that, for example, with cinema, kind of classical Hollywood and the star system, you know, there were stars that have these personae, but they were never sort of exactly equal to the self because they had to be kind of open enough to allow for lots of different film roles, right? And there was a kind of mystique, you know, cinema stars were always like, they're kind of like us, but they're not really like us. Right. You know, we can identify, but they're more glamorous and beautiful. Okay, then you move to TV and because of sort of the temporality of TV, like even you were saying about the internet that comes more, this sense of liveness and familiarity and, you know, they enter our homes through our TV set and we see their homes through and we can tune in anytime and it's like their life goes on with us. There was more of a sense of, the identification of the person with the role. You know, we kind of thought like Mary Tyler Moore was Mary Tyler Moore and Lucy was Lucy. But then with YouTube, even more so, right? Because now it's like entering kids' bedrooms and, you know, you're right. filming your everyday moment by moment. And in some ways, I think that that opens up, I mean, it opened up a space for, for again, young women, mm-hmm. because this interest in YouTube in kind of intimacy and daily life, like it, it, opened up more in a way possibilities for people who had been closed out of production in film more possibilities opened up in tv even more i would say maybe through digital so it both allows because of this interest in kind of the intimacy in the everyday for young women like you to get in but then as you're saying then you're constantly scrutinized you're the object of the look and you know i'm sure i don't need to tell you i mean women are harassed on social media, everything you do is evaluated and scrutinized in your appearance and what you said. And 
And then, like you said, it kind of lives on forever, always with this feeling that it's happening now, because when you watch it, it, you know, has the sense of liveness. Yep. So it both, I think, gives openings for people like you, and I'm sure subjects you to a lot of scrutiny that then, you know, people reading the comments worry, you know, they see possibilities and they see, oh my God, if I get online, I'm going to be attacked too. But one of the things I think was so great about your YouTubing is the way that you, you know, were like, I'm not going to obsess about my appearance every single second. I'm going to show, you know, whatever, pimples and all. And, and it opened up, I think, possibilities that made people, you know, again, think about how one can be visible without having to always feel like I must be the perfect image in a way that made for a way better image. You know what I mean? So totally. It's so true. You know, that like the opportunities and the, of being a young woman on, on the internet is so incredible. And I'm so grateful for those opportunities, but at the same time, it is so true. It comes with it's challenges. And I guess, you know, that's how everything is. It's like, there's the good and the bad to everything. But regardless, I'm, I'm grateful to be a part of it. I'm very excited to see what happens next. And I'm like, I can't fathom it yet. But I'm very excited to see what happens next. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, as we've been talking about with all of these, the way you put it was exactly right, that there's opportunities and there's challenges with all of these media forms. So I think that that's important for people to think about currently and historically, that it's not like we moved from the dark ages to the you know time of enlightenment now. It's always, they were always both certain possibilities, certain challenges were in that now Two, keeping it in mind so that one you know in creating content can think, well, how can I best deal with opening up possibilities without just adding to sort of further media tribalism, media bubbles, you know, more commodification of everybody, more scrutiny. In a way, yes, that's going to happen, but there's also possibility as you really demonstrate for more creativity. And, you know, I'm sure that as you go on, you know, just the things that you and other young makers and other old makers, I mean, you know, now there's the possibility for so many people to kind of put their creative ideas out there and and then you get an interesting mix and that inspires people to do something new and that, you know, so I agree with you. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to seeing, you know, what will continue to happen in, in our world. Totally. Well, thank you so much. This was so incredibly cool and fun and I had a great time. Yes, thank you. You know, if you're ever interested in college, Emma, you should think about Brown University. You can come, you could be a modern culture and media concentrator and, you know, it'd be great. The second, if I ever decide to go to college, I'm going straight to Brown. <laughs> End of story. Thank you both so, so much for taking the time to do this. That was so interesting. And I, I really appreciate both of you for coming on. So thank you again. It was great, it was fun. Thank you both, it was so fun. You can tune into Emma's YouTube channel at youtube.com backslash Emma Chamberlain. Lynn's book, Reviewing Reception, is out now. You can also listen to her podcast, Talking Television in a Time of Crisis, wherever you get your podcasts. If You Want to Know is produced by Ryan Killian Krause. I'm your host, Matthias. We'll see you next time. <laughs>